to touch the world. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Justin Gray, and this is my friend William Merle. As they've uh, probably already mentioned, we are a part of uh, Bethel. I'm a part of the pastoral team, and uh, my friend William here is a part of uh, serving in our church, but also leads our ENS seminary, which is Every Nation Seminary, um, which is launching here soon. And uh, Pastor James has invited us to come and be a part of this series that we're in. And before we actually get into uh, the title of the series and what we're going to be covering, I want to read you this quote. This is an incredible quote. As we prepare, we thought that this was such a poignant statement from a very significant American figure. Okay, So this guy is James Baldwin probably noticed that name. He is uh, a speaker, author, essayist, social activist, was very, very prolific, and, um, and did a lot of work during the 60s and 70s. But uh, what a lot of people don't know about James Baldwin is that when he was a teenager, he actually came to faith in a Pentecostal church, and shortly after that became a preacher, Sunday school teacher. And uh, that'll make more sense in light of this quote as I read it. Uh, he came into somewhat of a crisis, and I want to read you uh, how he started to work that out for himself. He said, I realized that the Bible had been written by white men, and the blood of the Lamb had not cleansed me in any way, whatever. I was just as black as I had been the day that I was born. Therefore, when I faced the congregation, it began to take all the strength I had not to stammer, not to curse, not to tell them to throw away their Bibles and get off their knees and go home and organize, for example, a rent strike. When I watched all the children, their copper brown and beige faces staring up at me as I taught Sunday school, I felt that I was committing a crime in talking about the gentle Jesus in telling them to reconcile themselves to their misery on earth in order to gain the eternal crown of heaven. Were only Negroes to gain this crown? Was heaven then to be merely another ghetto? We're here continuing a sermon series called Unite Nashville. And the title of our sermon is The Identity Crisis of Discipleship. And as you can see from the, the poignant James Baldwin quote, as a black man in the 1960s in America who had been a preacher he felt, he had come to this point where he felt there is an unresolvable tension between his black ethnic identity and his faith following Jesus. So me and Justin have been talking about this, this text a lot, really been grappling with things. Uh, and we're going to set up these two characters and then dive into the text. Let me, let me tell you about our first character. This is just some very simple, straightforward details about this person during this ancient period. Okay, So our first character lived in a high-profile urban area. Our first character was wealthy, and actually far wealthier than the average common worker during that time. Um, this person was also a citizen of the very notable empire. Uh, we also know that this person was a prominent military official. And we also know that this person represented the dominant, dominant ethnic group during that time. But, as we'll find out in the story, his life became entangled with someone you would never expect because this second character was from a rural, small town. He was poor. He was part of an oppressed people group who were occupied by an imperial power. 
He was a common laborer, a fisherman, and he was part of an ethno-religious minority. Acts 10, 1 through 8, and it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we can already see in this passage of scripture that Cornelius, who is the first character that we uh, just had a chance to, to, to show you the details of his life, is already having his own sense of crisis. He's already kind of in this place of wrestling with his own identity. We know that because it says that he was a devout man and a God-fearer, which meant that it was likely that Cornelius, though he was a product of Roman pagan culture, was somehow connected to some form of synagogue worship, which would have been incredibly important for that time. Um, And not only that, we see that he was connected to some kind of synagogue worship because of the unique emphasis in scripture on almsgiving and prayer, which was typically a part of Jewish religious life. So you've got this guy, a Roman pagan, who somehow becomes sympathetic toward the Jewish people, has this desire to worship their God, and we find him in this passage in his own kind of wrestling and self-discovery of what it looks like to follow this Jewish God as this Roman centurion. And here's the thing. So as a Roman citizen, it would have been incredibly, incredibly difficult for him to live out the kind of faith that he wanted so desperately to try to to understand because in order for him to fully convert to Judaism, he would have had to have been circumcised. And that was just something that was just, I mean, in some cases, some scholars would say this was illegal. It was against the law for him to be circumcised. So you see this wrestling, which would have been a denial of his Roman male identity. And, and one more thought on Cornelius. When you think about him, we don't know why he was close to Judaism. We're yeah. not sure why he was almost Jewish. But one of the most likely things that we can speculate is that he may have had a Jewish wife. Often a Roman soldier, if they were stationed somewhere long enough, if they settled down, it's typically because they married a local. So you can almost imagine Cornelius as that guy whose wife goes to church and he lets her give. He goes to a meeting every now and then, but he's sort of halfway in. Right? He, he cares enough to be around, but he, he's in all the way in. So that's, imagine Cornelius in those terms. Yeah. He's a God-fear, but he hasn't gone all the way Jewish yet, mainly because of circumcision. So we're going to pick up back in Acts 10, verse 9. We're introduced to Peter. It says, The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, uh, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. Mm. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made an inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. This is a somewhat familiar passage in the history of Acts. Peter's vision on the roof, the unclean food. And, but what's, what's really interesting here is like Cornelius, Peter was wrestling with this identity crisis. For Cornelius, the identity crisis had to do with whether he was going to follow this Jewish God, sort of the, the call to discipleship. But for Peter, it was the call to make disciples, the call to mission that was bringing him into a sense of identity crisis. And it's because as a Jew, as a member of a group that had been enslaved in Egypt, in exile in Babylon, and then occupied by Rome, they understood themselves to be an oppressed people who were wholly indifferent than everybody else. So the, 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 two, the two sort of core parts of their identity was their, their oppression from external powers and their set-apartness for God. Part of that was manifested in the most practical way in their dietary lives. They ate different food than the people around them. Whether they were in Egypt or whether they were in Babylon or whether they were occupied around, they ate different food. And part of the function of a dietary code, it's not that you just eat different food, is that because you eat different food, you can't eat with other people. Mm-hmm. That's part of the way it works. So what Peter is revealing when he's having this vision is he had never eaten in the home of a Gentile. He had never eaten unclean food. It's because of his commitment to his Judaism, to his ethnic, ethno-religious identity. And you can see this tension because God is beginning to work on him saying, you know, you can't call unclean what I call clean. And he's not quite sure. He's talking about the food. He's talking about the people related to the food. And then he gets this, he gets a call from these people from who Cornelius have sent to bring him. And, and God says, listen to, what I'm, listen to what I'm doing. Obey the Holy Spirit. Don't even ask. Just go. Mm. And what's really interesting, I just want to bring out one point here, is that Peter was sitting in Joppa. And it probably was not lost on Peter that there was another prophet from the Old Testament who had also been called to an unclean people to preach, named Jonah. And Jonah, when he was in Joppa and got the call, he disobeyed God. Mm. He did not want to go to the people of Assyria. So it probably dawned on Peter, something's going on here. And I think we often have that choice to make in our lives when God calls us out of our cultural, ethnic enclaves, beyond our comfort zone to follow him in mission. Yeah. And we sense this tension because Peter knew if he went, he'd be doing something at first he had never done before, but he'd be sort of betraying the people who he had been raised to mistrust, the people who had been raised to see as unclean, the people who had been raised to see as, as an oppressor, God was calling him to see them differently, and it was messing with Peter's identity. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of messing with identity, I mean, this passage really speaks to us now. You know, I can't tell you how many conversations I've been in with, 
you know, students from TSU or from Fisk or how many lectures I've listened to online where you hear this outrage, this outcry, this, this uh, idea that permeates culture of the, the white man's Jesus, right? And, and the conflict that people come into yeah. as they try to reconcile their faith with um, the, this cultural narrative that seems to strip them of their, their, uh, their awareness as a black person, yeah. of their, their cultural influence and preferences. And, and that tension um, can really be gut-wrenching. It can really, it actually creates a, an anxiety and a pain that much like Baldwin in the earlier quote, makes you want to, to separate makes you want to step away from the mission of God, makes you want to step away from his community and from those who may not think or look like you. But ultimately, just as you said, God is up to something. And often what he's up to is something that isn't just for others, but also to do something deeper in us to help us understand uh, the kind of relationship that he wants us to be in. And and we all feel that. And, And I just like to say, there might be some of you right now, even in this church, or watching online that have had some of these thoughts yourself. Maybe you felt this same tension, this same anxiety, and the beauty of scripture is that it speaks to the very places in which we find, we, uh, in which we find ourselves today and doesn't leave us abandoned in that way. Perhaps it's most predictable, if you will, that this identity crisis is, is most uh, felt and most urgent for African Americans in America right now in 2020, but the reality is is that Christians throughout history have experienced the identity crisis, the ethnic cultural identity crisis of following Jesus and making disciples. I'll give you two examples from white people, actually. So in the, in the early Middle Ages, uh, as most people don't seem to realize, most of Europe, white Europe, were barbarian, warring, pagan tribes. And slowly, century after century, missionaries went to them to preach the gospel. They were often martyred to share the gospel with them. But one of the more interesting uh, tales of that was the Franks in the 6th century. They, they were a warring tribe, uh, always, always sort of encroaching upon the Roman Empire. And finally, their chief became a Christian. So he decided that all of his men in his tribe were going to be baptized and, and, and become Christians. But what he told there's an interesting des- decision they made. They were going to baptize all the men in the river, but they had them raise their right hands out of the water as they were baptized to make sure their fighting hand didn't wasn't submerged and submitted to Christianity. And I, and it's sort of comical, but there's a sense in which their identity as a warring, uh, manly, barbarous tribe. Uh, they felt that it was, it was being called into question by the teaching of Jesus. So the, the practical compromise they had was they just wouldn't baptize that part of their body. That could continue to um, wreak havoc all around Europe. And in a sense, that's a metaphor for how many people come to Jesus. They leave some aspect of their culture, some aspect of their ethnicity. They want to leave it out yeah. of the baptismal sure. waters. And then there's, in, in a more recent one, during the Civil Rights Movement, there was a white Methodist minister by the name of Ed King. And he was behind in Jackson this very, very slightly comical, slightly tragic effort to integrate churches. So they would pick a church on Sunday and they'd send a multiracial group of college students to that church to try to worship. Most of the time they'd be turned away. Sometimes they'd be arrested. But what was interesting for King was perhaps the most difficult point for him was in 63 in October on a Saturday night, he called his former pastor. The pastor who discipled him, mentored him, 
encouraged him to get involved in civil rights. Pastor would encourage him to go into ministry. He said, he said, Pastor, uh, I'm sending a group to your church this Sunday. What are you going to do? And Ed King talks about the difficult conversation that he had with his pastors, his former pastor. And he said the betrayal he felt, mm. both feeling his pastor had betrayed him by saying, I'm not going to do anything. Mm. The police arrest them. It's not my fault. And he also felt that he knew that his family and all his white Southern Methodist friends of Mississippi felt that he had betrayed them by getting involved in the civil rights movement. And when he was actually contemplating coming back in the early 60s to Mississippi, Medgrevers, his, his close friend, had said, you need to come back. You need to do this church, the church sit-ins. He wrote this. He said, I had agonized for years about how I could go back and be a priest in the church. I had never really understood that I had to find the church as the white church. Mm. Now it was time. I simply say to myself, I am called to be a priest in the church. And what King realized is as, as he was following the call to make disciples, following the call to be on God's mission, he realized that it wasn't just an identity crisis for black people in the 1960s in America. There's an identity crisis that he had to go through and recognize that he followed a brown Messiah. Mm. And his brothers and sisters were not just white Mississippians, mm -hmm. but they were black, brown, and every color, every nation. Mm -hmm. And... I think it was an identity crisis that it may be harder for white people to imagine. You know, right. what's the identity crisis that I would have right, right, right. following Jesus? Yeah. He's white, right? Yeah. He's white on all the things, <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyes, looks just like me. But it may, it may not come at your moment of baptism, your moment of following, the, like Cornelius at the front end, right? Right, right, right? Often for someone like Ed King, it comes later on. Mm. It comes at this sort of this moment of going, okay, in order to do what God's coming to do now, yep. there's going to be a confrontation right. with myself Right. There's going to be a, a level of severe discomfort and uh -huh. a sense of betrayal mm -hmm. that I embark yeah, and in. And that so. sacrifice is, is something that, that we all feel, we all wrestle with. And so let's see how Peter and Cornelius come to grips with this tension and how God might be wanting to lead us forward through the rest of this story. And it says, uh, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and co close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Look at this breakthrough that Peter gets. So Peter, in all of his zeal and stubbornness, finally sees that the work of the Holy Spirit is not limited to his ethnic and cultural preferences. Wow. Every step that Peter took toward Cornelius' home. I mean, imagine that. He's in Joppa. They come to get him. Every step he took toward Cornelius' home and ultimately toward God's mission, how he called him on mission, was a reckoning with his ethnic and cultural identity. Every step he took. This painful history and the remaining effects of Roman oppression and all the religious limitations and, 
I mean, associating with Gentiles was off limits. And then you've got circumcision and you mentioned dietary laws and the requirements of temple worship and all the things. Peter's whole world is being shaken. His whole world is being shaken and called into question for the sake of the gospel and to follow Jesus. And it's in the midst of this identity crisis and in this shaking that he realizes and he says it so, so great in verse 28. But God has shown me that I should not call. I, who am I? Who am I to call what God has called clean, unclean, or common? And not only that, we also see here in this passage that, that Peter's beginning to realize that this is probably more than just a meal. I mean, we have two references in this passage of the number of people who are gathered there. This isn't just some kind of dinner party. He's looking around and saying, oh, he's got the whole congregation together. I mean, there's a whole, a whole group that's here to hear or experience something that, um, that's starting to dawn on him. And so, uh, and so we see that with all these people gathered, he's starting to work out for himself what is going on here. And he even lands this with the question. He says, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I obeyed God on mission. However, I'm still a bit unclear why I'm here. What's going on here? So after Peter says, why am I here? And they basically said, we're hoping you'd tell us. <laughs> and Peter in his mind is beginning to go, okay, this guy is, is close to becoming Jewish. Maybe I'm here to convert him to become a Jew. Mm-hmm. Maybe he can become a Jew and then become a follower of Jesus. Yeah. But what happens is not what he expects. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And then he goes on, uh, I'll skip uh, several verses, he goes on to sort of tell the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Then it says here, while Peter was still saying these things, still telling the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. All Peter's Jewish friends were going, what is going on right now? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain with them for some days. So here's what's really interesting here. We often emphasize, rightly so, the fact the Holy Spirit just poured out on them in the middle of Peter's sermon. And that's, that's a miracle and it's worth a whole sermon on its own. But we're going to emphasize, actually, we're going to look at the points that happened after that. Because keep in mind, Peter was assuming this whole time, the big threshold for him was sort of breaking through and spending time with Gentiles and then helping them become good Jews. And then they'll get, become followers of Jesus. But the whole order is flipped on Peter because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter says, well, I guess we can skip the circumcision part. Let's just go straight to baptism. Right. But here, so for Peter, Peter had this breakthrough on mission that all cultures, ethnicities, and peoples are good and beautiful and dignified before God. There's this affirmation of the goodness of not only his ethnicity, but all ethnicities, even Romans, who he was taught to despise. But then for Cornelius, here's the breakthrough for him. We, We can almost miss it. It says... 
they were baptized, right? In verse 48 at the very end. So for Cornelius, his whole, probably his whole fear with becoming a Jew was circumcision, what it would mean for his male Jewish identity. But Peter has a revelation. You don't have to be circumcised. You're good. But to be baptized in some ways was way worse. It was a greater sacrifice for Cornelius. And for this reason, keep in mind, Jesus, Peter preached this message, Jesus is Lord of all. That is the central call to discipleship, the central message in one's baptism is Jesus is Lord of all. And as a, not only a Roman citizen, but as a member of the Roman army, Cornelius had to participate in what's called the cult of Caesar. Meaning you can have any side religion you want, but ultimately your religious and imperial allegiance is to Caesar. You even participate in the worship of Caesar. Mm-hmm. See, that's probably part of the reason why he didn't become Jewish as well. But in being baptized, every Christian in the Roman Empire knew mm-hmm. that you're making a clean break with your worship of Caesar. You're making a clean break in saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This was jeopardizing not just, you know, circumcision may have jeopardized his sort of male identity, but, but baptism jeopardized his entire livelihood, his entire identity as a citizen. And for, for Cornelius to, be, to get the message of Jesus as Lord and be baptized, he skipped circumcision, but to be baptized was this massive breakthrough where he recognized that there's something that God is calling me to that's so much greater. Yeah than sort of this half-in, half-out Judaism right. that I've been experiencing. Right. Yeah, and, and that really brings us to, um, you know, our concluding thoughts. I mean, as, as me and William studied this and, and talked through this and worked through this, we were really trying to figure out, okay, what are the gospel implications for us today? You know, you look at these, these you know, passages of Scripture, you see these incredible characters where God is working in their life, and, and obviously there's some cues that we can take from that, but... Like Peter, you know, I grew up in a very black world in Detroit. I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, school, church, family, um, and it's a world that I love, a world that I celebrate. Um, but let's be honest, it's a world at times that causes me to feel misunderstood and even discriminated against. And at times I've used that pain as a weapon to keep people like you, William, out. And that's the tension that we see even played out in the soul of Peter, is you see Peter feeling very justified in a sense because of the kind of pain and oppression and some of the religious rites and rules that were in place to create these barriers. And because he feels justified, he's really having a hard time following Jesus. And, And... it, the word comes to him three times, <laughs> three times the Holy Spirit forbears with him, and finally he gets it and takes those steps. And I think, you know, in a similar way, you know, what I've had to learn is that as I follow Jesus, he's had to help me see that his plan of redemption is for all people. But here's the thing, that his plan of redemption is not to destroy my ethnicity or my cultural identity, but to redeem it to empower it, and to work through it to share the message of forgiveness and hope and redemption with those around me. And, and that's how my cage has been rattled, and that's kind of what uh, has happened in my soul as a result of, of following God and really just dealing with this passage again. So. Yeah, and for me, just really quick, I think that as a, as a white American Christian, 
though the, the, the fundamental me- metaphor in the black church is sort of America as Egypt, right? The, the need for liberation. I would say most white American Christians have always seen America as the promised land. There's a, there's a glorious history. There's all these great things. We're, we've made it. There's nothing better than this. And in following Jesus, particularly into this church community, following Jesus into relationships with people who don't look like me, hearing their stories, hearing and sort of taking a look back at American history, I've come to realize, and it's a deeply sort of alienating and difficult thing, that America is less like the promised land and more like Babylon. There's a sense in which, yes, there's great cultural achievement. Yes, there are things to celebrate and love. And, you know, we're in a moment right now where there's debates about historic figures and which statues should be taken down and which histories should be told and which ones should be lamented, what should be celebrated. And I think there are things you can celebrate in the past and understand there are fallen people, but there was this sense in me where I realized that I couldn't just see, even if it was great for my family, I couldn't just see America as a promised land because it's not the new Jerusalem. We are children of the king and we're called to a new kingdom. That is our fundamental allegiance. And for me, that meant that in order to live in a different way, live in that kingdom, my life had to look like the kingdom of God, which has people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I couldn't just live in a white ethnic enclave. Frankly, I went to Bethel, I've been to Bethel for over a decade. And for the first half of my time at Bethel, I had almost exclusively white friends, almost exclusively white small groups. I had black acquaintances, but it was only about four or five years ago when we first started, our families became friends, I began to realize that there was some greater intentional work I had to do in following the Holy Spirit into actual multi-ethnic community. As we consider this story, I want to leave you with these couple questions. The first is, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? You know, the Holy Spirit spoke to Cornelius. The Holy Spirit spoke to Peter. That's great. We can celebrate God speaking there. But he wants to speak to you today. What is he saying to you in this story? And in what ways does following Jesus on mission help you see the dignity and goodness of other cultures and ethnicities? And then finally, how has following Jesus challenged you? Think about this. How has it challenged you and your own tendency toward idolizing your ethnicity and your culture? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this story. I thank you that you are the actor. Lord, you are the protagonist in Peter and Cornelius' life. Lord, I thank you that you are the mover in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak to everyone who watches this sermon, whether it's online, whether it's live on television. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would find in the gospel, Lord, we find in following Jesus, Lord, an unbelievable affirmation of the goodness of who you made us to be Lord at the same time Lord you would push us beyond where we are Lord you would push us into that multi-ethnic body that is your church Lord that we would see the glory of your creation Lord and the glory of your redemption of all people and all things I pray that we would respond to your Holy Spirit with obedience Lord I pray that we would die to ourselves so that you might live in Jesus name Amen Wow. Thank you, Pastor Justin and Dr. Merle for that unbelievable conversation. It was no accident that you were with us today. 
I pray that the conversation that we were just a part of changes the way we view Jesus, we view each other, and we engage God. Throughout the week, my faith is encouraged daily through the social media channels our church uses. If you want to stay encouraged, you can connect with us on Instagram as at Bethel World and Facebook at Bethel World Outreach Church. If you need prayer for anything, scan the QR code that's on the screen and that'll take you to a page where you can get prayed for by a pastor or ministry team member. We trust that you being here today made a difference. Thank you for joining us as together we're reaching a city to touch the world.